This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. How can we talk about free will in the multiverse, a universe with infinite copies of ourselves? At its core, freedom means being able to make a personal, conscious decision about your own behavior. Freedom means choosing your own path out of poverty. Human imagination is our greatest freedom. For indigenous people, freedom is self-determination. It originally meant the power to rule, and in a democracy, the power to rule and be ruled as an equal. With our colleagues across the campus, the Division of Arts and Humanities at the University of California, San Diego, presents Degrees of Freedom, An extraordinary public lecture series featuring six unique perspectives on what it means to be free. At the beginning of the year, I was invited to step in for the dean of the graduate division and give a short presentation at the convocation for incoming graduate students. And I was told, you know, just talk five minutes about yourself and your, the story of your graduate studies. I thought it was pretty boring. Um, what I wanted to talk about instead was multidisciplinarity and make the theme of my remarks, you know, the encouragement to members of the audience, our incoming graduate students, to be multidisciplinary and to explore multidisciplinary options during their years here. And I looked around for good examples of people to explore these possibilities with and institutes on campus. And I'm deeply embarrassed to say that one of the names I stumbled across was one I had not encountered before, but somebody, a colleague in visual arts, who exemplifies more than almost anybody else on the campus the kind of multidisciplinarity that I was talking about, and is associated with a couple of organizations on campus that do as well. And when I went to Dean Della Coletta to enlist her support for the series, I said, you know, multidisciplinarity is kind of the hallmark of this series. And she said, well, that's really what I'm all about, too. And that was one reason that she wanted to sign on and, uh, bless her heart, support the series. Well, as you might guess, the colleague I'm referring to is tonight's speaker, Sheldon Brown. And he actually has done me the favor of listing the names of some of his positions up on the slide. Uh, Recently appointed to the highly honorific position, the MacArthur Foundation Endowed Chair in Digital Media and Learning. I think that was just about a month ago, wasn't it, Sheldon? He's the director of the Clark, Arthur C. Clark Center for Human Imagination. Imagine what an amazing job it would be to have that title, the Center for Human Imagination. And a co-founder of our Cal IT2 here on campus, that's short for California Institute of Telecommunications and Information Technologies. If I had to describe the range and extent of Professor Brown's multidisciplinarity, I would use up all of his speaking time tonight. I encourage you to go on his website. 
you'll be dazzled not only by the visual effects, but by the names and the character of his ongoing projects. Mikasa Tsukasa, Tukasa, uh, video wind chimes, assembly. This is a computer uh, system. No, I'm sorry. It's an installation that demonstrates how computers can be taught to learn and can be taught emergent behavior. Emergent meaning something you can't trace back causally to a preceding cause. Um, the scalable city, about which I think we're going to hear um, tonight. He has been exhibited all over the world, and as you can see from the slide on the screen right now, he is associated with a number of highly prestigious institutions. His topic tonight, understanding and engaging human imagination. So please join me in welcoming to the podium, Sheldon Brown. Well, thank you for that uh, nice introduction and a great way to tee up the context of this whole series. And I hope I can do it justice in uh, uh, giving you the last talk of this series. And we'll Okay, so um, as you know, as it was described, you know, I, I, I work really across many different disciplines, and um, uh, and so I'm going to try to talk to you tonight about taking a, a, a view of a phenomena, imagination, which might be the realm that we have our utmost freedom. You know, in everything that we do, we can always have our imagination. So if we look at what imagination is from a perspective that intersects the arts and the sciences, um, what might we be able to understand about the phenomena of imagination? And given that we may be able to understand it in ways that we previously haven't been able to, might we still come away from that thinking that it's a realm of this endless possibility of freedom? Or is there something a little more constrained going on with our human imaginations? So maybe kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Um, now, as was mentioned, I, I'm the director of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. And um, this is a new organization here on campus. It started two years ago. And, um, and it is a, uh, a thrilling wonder story. Um, that I'll tell you about some tonight. And, uh, and our mission maybe is to save the earth. If I, you know, I think that's a good mission to have for anybody to have. You should want to save the earth. Um, so the Clark Center started, uh, as I said, two years ago with an award from the Arthur C. Clark Foundation from a, a proposal I wrote um, around this. And our mission is this, to understand, enhance, and enact human imagination. So it's a little bit maybe grandiose and maybe a little bit fuzzy and vague. You know, what is, what is this thing about human imagination and how can we hope to begin to do these kinds of ambitious things? Um, so I guess one of the first things we want to ask and that this guy's asking is, you know, what is imagination? Um, so can we actually start to understand this as a, uh, as a, a phenomena. Um, what might its dimensions be? Where might we start to understand it? Um, and so maybe what we want to do first is uh, look at what some 
uh, smart people have already said about imagination. So we mentioned Einstein was mentioned earlier, so we can start with Einstein. He's, he's now our, you know, he's our emblem of, of a smart guy. And so Einstein says, imagination is more important than knowledge. Uh, knowledge is limited, but imagination encircles the world. So, um, you know, that's, that's really inspiring. Um, I think Einstein must think imagination is really important. You know, we think that he is this is this emblematic figure of the creation of knowledge. Yet for him, imagination was actually more important than that, and it encircles the world. Whatever the hell that means, um, it's poetic. But you know, still that doesn't really help me kind of understand what imagination is. Um, so he says some more things about it. That imagination is everything. Um, it's the preview of life's coming attractions. Well, again, it's a nice poetic statement, but, but now imagination is everything. You know, that doesn't kind of help kind of narrow it down yet again. Maybe the preview of life's coming attraction is a little bit more uh, incisive and insightful. I, I like that. I also like that it kind of connects to some cultural phenomena, like, like imagination is what happens before you watch a movie. You know, it's the coming attractions. That's, you know, that's kind of interesting. And maybe a little bit more about a context about imagination, that, that logic will get you from A to Z, but imagination will get you everywhere. So in a way, imagination encompasses logic. Um, it's like a subset, if we start to look at that as a, a kind of in a set theory way. Um, and imagination is going to go all sorts of crazy places. You know, you can imagine it's very serendipitous with the way he's describing it. So he gives us a little more context here. So maybe we need to let's see about some what some other smart people might have said about it. So the educator Maria Montessori: Imagination does not become great until human beings, given the courage and the strength, use it to create. Well, that's kind of an interesting statement. So now. Einstein, you know, imagination was everything. For Maria Montessori, she's like, yeah, imagination is good. Um, but in order for imagination to be great, you actually have to use it. You actually have to do something with it. It's not good enough just to have imagination. Um, so she privileges creativity. So she's putting some context on it. Now, the, sci- the astrophysicist and science popularizer Carl Sagan gives us maybe a little, another perspective that imagination will often carry us to worlds that never were, but without it, we go nowhere. And now that's an interesting statement, you know, because in a way, he's, it's maybe even a little cautionary about imagination, that imagination might take us, maybe I could rephrase it, that imagination might take us down a lot of blind alleys, um, but without it, we, may, we would never find the alley that connects one street to another. Um, you know, so this... So again, kind of these questions about the use, usefulness of imagination. And in, and in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Mark Twain says, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. Now, I think this is a really interesting quote um, because now it starts to co- correlate a couple of aspects. It starts to correlate the ways in which we perceive the world and the ways in which our imagination operates. So there's these two different kind of cognitive levels that now are starting to come together. And of course, it takes a, an actual artist to kind of start to pull these things together. No more scientists and educators. Um, but, but we will give a scientist the last word here. 
Oliver Sacks, who follow, following up on Twain, says every act of perception is to some degree an act of creation, and every act of memory is to some degree an act of imagination. So now, actually, I think this is uh, useful. This is something we can actually uh, interrogate a little bit further. It starts to put together these cognitive phenomena that Twain is alluding to um, about perception, about memory, about the interaction between them that is a role that imagination might be playing. So we'll keep that in mind and as we go forward to look at some of the ways that might be useful to us. But I want to start by looking at art. And, you know, art, uh, we think, is this, uh, is it distinctively a product of imagination um, and, and differs from science, you know? So I'll make, I'll make two kind of large claims about the difference between art and science here. Um, and like all large claims, you know, they're, they're, they overstate the case. But, you know, science, when we want to interrogate the phenomenon of imagination, we want to we want to answer questions. We want to reduce the phenomena to something that we can interrogate, that we can get an answer from. With art, we want to ask questions, and we want to elude the giving of a simple answer. So there's a dynamic between art and science that I think, when put together, can be uh, uh, quite productive, quite dynamic. So let's look at some ways, maybe, that our imagination operates uh, when we engage with art. So we, you know, so we know that, imagine, that imagination is critical to the creation of art. Um, art comes, and we could say art comes purely from the imagination, imagination in many different contexts. But art is really is absolutely critical to the experience of art. So here we have uh, a, a fresco um, by uh, uh, the, the Church of St. Ignacio in Rome. And so in this fresco, so this is the ceiling of the church, and we can see that uh, it's imagining this realm uh, beyond the realm that we live in. Um, so it's purporting to show us this, this vision of heaven. And it does it in some very kind of interesting ways that, that uh, bring together at least three different kinds of imagination in order for us to, to have this experience of this artwork. So one is the thematic structure of it, you know, this, other, this realm beyond the earth. Another is the fact that this is an illusionary space. So this is uh, painted on a flat ceiling, um, yet it uses Trump Loy uh, effects to build off of the architectural archways here and the physical windows uh, along the sides to make an extension of them to make it seem as if this is a, a domed ceiling with a, you know, a skylight to heaven in the middle of it. So in that way, it starts to bring us deeper into the thematic structure of this. And using these kinds of, of doubles of things that are from the real world, and you know, I mentioned the architectural pieces, but also the human figures, the, rep, the, the uh, elements of nature, that all of those come together to stimulate our imagination, to get us deeply into the, uh, uh, the phenomena of this artwork. Now, we also, when we look at it actually in, up close, we realize that the whole thing is just a bunch of blobs of colored you know, goo. And that somehow, 
we cohere that into phenomena that we say, well, that is a picture of, a, of an angel, you know? And so we, so in some way, our perception of this is conflated in our brains with memories, with expectations, with narrative, with, you know, with all of these other kinds of mental phenomena that ends up producing this engagement with this work of art. If we were just looking at it, if we were just seeing it with our eyes, it would just be a set of, of we would just see blobs of colored goo. Um, yet we, our imagination allows us to transcend that perception. So then, you know, in the uh, Renaissance, um, a lot of effort was paid to try to look at how could we uh, maybe get this, you know, this artist's imagination not so central in the loop of representation, but can we come up with ways of looking at recreating the world that are more uh, that are that have more veracity? Um, so this is a uh, etching by Albert Dürer, which is showing you know one of the mechanisms that Dürer used. Um, so it's kind of a a, a meta uh, you know meta narrative about his own creative process here, um, where. This perspectival system is used so he can very accurately capture the real world. And maybe his imagination isn't so much in the loop of, of what he's trying to capture here. Um, so this kind of accuracy of creating representations of reality versus fantasy becomes one of the key artistic developments of the Renaissance. You know, before the Renaissance, before we had perspective, you know, much, of, much of Western artwork was was uh, dedicated to the representation of kind of, of ecclesiastical you know, relationships um, that used compositional structures where you know, God was there, kings were there, and priests were down at the bottom. Um, and you know, so it was all about power hierarchies. And now we had an actual ground of reality that we could situate representations in, and that the world became a worthy subject of representation. Um, but Durer also is known t- for, the, um, for this uh, rhinoceros uh, etching, which for about 300 years was the dominant view that Europeans had of what a rhinoceros was. And so he's utilizing all of those same kind of methodologies of, of veracity, of representation of objects in the world. Um, but... In his, but he conflates them with these kind of poetic descriptions of rhinoceroses, armor-clad, this kind of weird little horn up here that uh, you know, doesn't really exist, um, and, uh, and comes up with this drawing in that bit because it's situated in that vocabulary of perspectival representation. This then kind of locks it into what a rhinoceros really is until, until a bunch of other... Uh, actual drawings of it end up coming to light. So we had other mechanisms that maybe kind of took that, uh, you know, that uh, brain out of the loop. Um, uh, camera obscura you know, became very important to the kinds of developments of this artistic style at that time. And uh, in one of the ways camera obscura is shown to be able to be useful is uh, you can capture your local neighborhood unicorn very well with a camera obscura. Um, uh, so then we you know, kind of move forward a few hundred years. And, um, 
And we start to get into these other more, even more mechanical systems of representation and creation. So, um, so we have the, the very famous uh, photographic series from Moybridge, um, which was developed with, uh, uh, with Stanford, uh, Leland Stanford, um, who, wanted to, who wanted to show whether or not, or wanted to add, know whether or not a horse, horse's four legs ever were off the ground at the same time. And so Moybridge came up with many different ways to try to figure this out. And you know, ultimately coming up with a system of, of cameras that would get triggered as this horse would run by. So he would uh, come up with this series of still images of the horse. Now, at the same time, we're starting to see that there are these mechanisms of, um, of ways in which we can take still images and somehow make them, uh, make them move um, by looking at them in sequence. And so now we have a phenomena um, which looks like a horse running, um, but, uh, but in fact it's not. That's something that's only happening in your brain. Um, all that's really going on is you're seeing these things uh, one after the other fairly quick. So is that an aspect of now your imagination kind of really very actively engaging with your perception to complete the illusion of motion here. Um, quickly, this got turned into uh, the, the, the antecedents of YouTube videos by <laughs> Thomas Edison. And, um, and you know, the, the funny cat video was born. Um, so, so I maintain that art is this collaboration between our senses and our imagination. And we have a, you know, showed a few examples of that. But, uh, but in fact, it might actually be reality that is the more significant collaboration between our senses and imagination. And art is a subset of reality. And, you know, and this is an idea that goes back you know, long before the Renaissance. And um, maybe I'll, I'll read this comic out loud to you all. So, uh, hello, 911, I'm trapped. It's dark and I can't see anything except for these two distorted splotches of light. Help! Splotches of light? Your, your eyeballs? I think that's what they are. There's meat everywhere. Ah, so you're a brain. Yes. Yeah, we all are. You're not trapped. Use your body to walk around and experience reality. But everything's just signals in my sensory cortices. How can I be sure they correspond to an external world? I'm sorry, but we can't send a search and rescue team into Plato's cave. <laughs> and so, of course, that's the great allegory of Plato's cave, where Plato, uh, you know, many, many years ago, um, uh, s described that our experience of the world was, was analogous to prisoners sitting on a ledge, looking at shadows cast on a wall, cast by puppeteers with uh, cutouts of objects from the real world. So that we're, our experience of reality is three times removed from actual reality. Now Plato says that, you know, fortunately philosophers you know, can see all this and kind of stand outside of this situation. Uh, but the rest of us, you know, we're, we're just delusional about, uh, about the real world. 
Um, Plato also had some pretty nasty things to say about art and poetry, too. But, um, but I, you know, I think there's something very quite interesting here about what is this nature of reality. And so from around these things, uh, you know, what I, what I want to do with, our, with the Clark Center is see, can we research specific questions on imagination? Um, so what might the neuro and cognitive science of imagination be? Um, how does imagination occur in society? So it's not just a phenomenon of the brain, but it's a phenomenon of our collective sociocultural condition. And more interestingly, can we create positive feedback loops in, ima in imagination processes? So we want to try to ask these questions across these kind of ranges of spatial and temporal scales. So the spatial scale would be from the neural to the cognitive to the social. And the temporal scale would be from the next moment and how our imaginations work to engage us in the next moment. Um, critical to how we actually talk to each other and communicate. If you're sitting here thinking about when will I actually finish this sentence? Uh, to how we might conceive of what the next millennia might be. So imagination actually, I think, works across that fairly radical scale. Um, and so when this was, so this kind of came out of some uh, work that I'd been doing uh, a number of, a few years ago. Um, one of the other hats that I wore, I was director of a, a previous research center called the Center for Research and Computing in the Arts. And that research center um, started in the early 70s when the idea of, of computers and art was just absolutely the, this, the weirdest idea that anyone could think of. You know, how, how could you use uh, a, a 1972 computer to create art? Well, there are a few visionary people here that were exploring using that. And so I became director of that center in the late 90s. And by that time, and certainly by the mid of the knots, the 20 knots, um, computing was the predominant way in which culture was created, experienced, and disseminated. Um, and uh, if you went back you know, 20, 30 years before that, people would have thought you were crazy to say something that, like that. But of course, computing is, is how all your television, movies, magazines, newspaper, photography, all created through digital processes. All art departments are all based on digital processes in very significant ways. Um, not exclusively, but, uh, but quite significantly. So what might be the next kind of, so computing transformed culture in an in a, in a amazing way that we probably hadn't seen since the invention of, the, the, of photography or the invention of perspective in, uh, in Western culture. So now what might be the next kind of domains of, of transform, transformations to culture? Well, one thing that happened with computing uh, across the board is it has radically accelerated all cultural processes, not just expressive culture, but the way we do science, the, all of our communications. Um, computing has radically increased the, the quantity and um, of, of knowledge production uh, in general, as well as the engagement, you know, the global engagement of it. Um, so 
we come into a situation where our world is changing so rapidly and that pace of change increasing all the time. So how, does our, how do our expressive cultures engage with that condition? If, you know, in a way, people feel that, you know, the, maybe this pace of change is completely out of control. We don't understand it. We don't understand our situation within it. We don't understand what, you know, what the role of the human is in this, in this equation. Um, so where do we turn to try to find some answers to this? Where do we turn to try to find coherency? Well, we turn to our expressive cultures. We, those, are the, those are the tools that supposedly give coherency and meaning to our experience. Um, so if that's a challenge to our culture, what might be some of the ways in which we you know, need to kind of think about the transformation of culture? So, I, you know, so it was this thought that, well, we need to develop imag our imaginations to help individuals and societies uh, better anticipate a world to come. Um, and, and one thing we have to do is look at how our claims about the future are produced and reified by our present condition. So we have one really uh, rich area of cultural production that's been engaged in this kind of speculation for over 100 years, and it's science fiction. Um, so what can we learn about what science fiction has been able or not been able to do over this period of time? Um, now, we have these new ways that we're discovering what our, uh, through cognitive and neuroscience, how our brain actually operates. You know, we're starting to, to peel back and peer into the functionality of the ways in which we think. How might this knowledge change the way we produce culture? Can we integrate these findings into our cultural forms? And with that, then that lead gives us the ability to create possibly new forms of art that allow us to peer beyond the edges of our current condition and give us insight into how our present shapes our future. So that's really what we want to do. And that, uh, to do that, I had to bring together a, a new kind of collection of people with uh, expertise across a wide variety of areas. And uh, so in the Clark Center, we have uh, an advisory board of people from cognitive science, neuroscience, physics, engineering, literature, school of medicine, the library. A couple of these people actually even talked to you in this series, um, Brian Keating, Sandy Brown. And we have advisors from different places around the world, a, a small staff, um, and, uh, and support. So this is primarily uh, initially kicked off with some support from the university. Um, very small amount from the university. Uh, 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 and a lot of external funding. So we have a, a, a primary corporate sponsor, Viasat, who uh, I'm eternally grateful to, and uh, 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 Taubman Foundation, who's provided a great deal of support to us, and a number of of patrons at various levels of engagement. And your name could be on this slide. Um, and importantly, we have a, a, a collection of, of science fiction authors who are very actively involved with us in our activities. And these are probably the ones that are the most involved. There's you know, maybe four or five others. Um, and the interesting thing about these people is they're all alumni of UC San Diego. 
And um, UC San Diego happens to be the, has happened to produce more of today's notable science fiction authors than any other university on planet Earth. And it did that not necessarily intentionally. Um, we don't have a program in science fiction. Um, these people came out of many different uh, parts of the university. Um, um, so there is a question as to you know, why that is. And I think it's pretty simple, because <laughs> that's where we are. And, um, and, and, there's, and, and it's in part because we, it's not just that our, you know, we have this weather thing here. But, it's, um, but there's a certain kind of utopian perspective that I think the university has about this kind of proactive engagement of the creation of the future and doing it in a dialogue between the, you know, the technology innovation and the kind of critical analysis. So a, a really productive dynamic um, between these things. And, um, and it, we also know that you know, the most famous artist of San, uh, from San Diego is, is Dr. Seuss who has a, a great uh, utopian motto, I think, where in, in his world, everyone's a pony, they all eat rainbows, and they all poop butterflies. <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty nice utopia. Um, and so we're in this era, you know, and in this place, this fabulous Anthropocene. And the Anthropocene, if you, haven't, if you aren't familiar with the term, but it's... You know, it's this idea that we're now in the era where the, the primary force on planet Earth is what we are doing to planet Earth. And, and, and in, uh, you know, half a million years from now, when, when, when our offspring, the robots, are looking at the, the geological samples, they'll be able to see, well, here's where the Anthropocene began. It's when they started exploding all those atomic bombs. And we let this layer of, of, of material that never has existed on Earth be a part of the geologic strata. Um, so, so, you know, so this term has become quite, um, it's be, you know, become a term of the term du jour. And, and in part now, when we, once we name this, uh, this era, the Anthropocene, it starts to beg the question, well, oh, so we're in this thing, we've been in these other things, those other things ended. Does that mean this thing's going to end? Um, what happens after the Anthropocene? And uh, one, of, one, of, one of the Clark Center uh, friends is uh, the author Werner Vinge, who in the mid-90s coined this notion of the singularity. And you may have heard something of the singularity. Uh, Ray Kurzweil has kind of taken it up uh, talking about how um, he's, he's in his maybe early 70s and thinks that in about 10 years, enough technology will be invented that he will be able to live forever. And it's, it's a good, it's a, it's a nice thought, keeps, keeps things moving forward. Um, but when Werner coined the idea about the singularity, he had a slightly different uh, tw uh, twist on it that uh, basically said that it represents the the passing of humankind from center stage, um, and, it, and noted that it contradicted our most deeply held notions of being, um, that essentially the, our creations would take over. And, uh, 
and that he gave it a time frame of about 30 years in the mid-90s. Um, so, you know, we got another 10 or 15 good years left here, so enjoy yourselves. Um, I, I know it's a sentiment that Hal here, you know, greatly, you know, is, is he's on board with it. Um, so now I want to actually kind of step back a little bit from these uh, existential dilemmas and um, talk a little bit about how in my own artistic practice I started to come to this point of asking these kinds of questions. And so as an artist, I, I work across lots of different methods and media. I'm going to pr primarily focus on just kind of one, one area tonight. Um, but they all have to do with trying to look at the, the complex interrelationship between how we experience mediated realms and how we experience physical reality. And that, that we often think that these are two separate things. And in my work, I try to kind of flip that equation, show the, the rich intermix of them, um, and follow along those lines of this idea about reality is this kind of uh, confluence of our perceptions and our imagination. Um, so uh, I think early on, some of the older works were mentioned. This uh, virtual re I do a lot of works that are these kind of mixed virtual reality uh, uh, installations, um, uh, like this one that's Mexico City, and I'll show just a short video clip of about a minute of each of these, of each of these two works. Mikasa's Two Casa, My House is Your House, is a binational networked virtual reality playhouse. Half of it's here in San Diego at the Children's Museum, the other half is in Mexico City at the National Center for the Arts. It has two physical spaces in each of these locales. And within these physical spaces, there are a number of things that kids can play with and interact with, some oversized tools, a giant ball they spin around, a kind of magic mirror. Um, and while they're doing that, they're inputting events into a computer that creates a 3D computer graphic uh, representation of what they're doing. And that 3D computer graphic representation is shared by both physical spaces. Smoke and Mirrors is an artwork commissioned by the Fleet Science Center of San Diego, which allows two to six visitors at a time to enter into a shared virtual environment. Participants navigate through a series of maze-like environments that explore the shifting ways in which the tobacco industry constructs cultural images and the social environment to maximize usage of its product. Participants attempt to escape the messages that have made tobacco usage desirable and acceptable, even as a growing body of knowledge has increasingly shown the deleterious effects that its consumption has upon the body. Each visitor first has their face three-dimensionally scanned and affixed to an avatar constructed from an isolated biological system. A network of computers connects each user into the shared environment, and a simple interface allows for control of one's movement through the mazes. And those are backaways. You know, the, the Mikasa project is in the mid-90s, and the Smoke and Mirrors is the late 90s. So these were kind of early on in the kind of this idea that you could connect people into virtual worlds with this thing called the internet. Um, and um, uh, but they, in all of them, I'm, trying, I'm very interested in how people socialize within those spaces and how it relates to how they socialize outside of those spaces. Um, along, along these lines, I, 
a, a more recent project I'll talk about is this project, The Scalable City, which is really a, a, a project that generates artworks. And it, there's a kind of underlying system. And it, there's, so there's a bunch of derivative products that come out of this uh, project. And, um, but underlying it is this scheme in which there's data, there's algorithms, and there's users. And, uh, and I often say that that is the kind of equation of contemporary culture, data plus algorithms plus people, and equals artwork. And so that's what this project does. So there's this data that I take from things like satellite imagery and topographic maps. I put it in through some simple algorithmic transformations and create these kind of new uh, kind of fantastic outcomes that have this connection between, that relates the familiar to the unfamiliar. And um, I heard that this just got approved in Carmel Valley. They're making it. Um, so I'm, I'm very proud of that. Uh, next. Um, so you can see these are some of the more abstraction of the kind of, you know, they're computational geometry systems. They're kind of really these kind of nerdy things that computer science people get really excited about. And I turn them into reality because that's what's going on. Your you know, nerdy computer science ideas are becoming reality. Um, uh, such as this, and, and, I, and as I do it, I'm, I try to keep in these kind of uh, distortions uh, as part of the thing you're seeing. So photogrammetry, which automatically takes photographs and tries to turn them back into objects. Um, you know, next. And it builds up in a variety of different installations with different kinds of configurations. Um, and uh, as was mentioned, shown in varieties of different forms in museums uh, all around the world. Um, now, one thing that happened as I was creating this, I used to be able to depend on, back when I was doing those things in the 90s, that was, you know, that was the good old days, you know? And you, know, you, just, you knew that your computer was going to be twice as fast and cost half as much if you, you know, were designing something for a couple of years out. And then we hit the mid-20 knots again, and, and suddenly we had a problem. You know, we couldn't just keep making computers faster the old-fashioned way. We came up with these newfangled ways to make them faster by just putting lots of them on chips, which also meant they were really like, impossible to program. No one knew how to program them. Um, but I needed to program them because I was trying to do this thing. And I was making movies because it wasn't fast enough to be a video game. Um, so I had to figure out how to program these things so they would be fast. So I go to the next slide. So it became a... Uh, a, a world-renowned expert in parallel computing, despite myself. Uh, and that's, that's overstating it quite a bit. But I ended up creating this National Science Foundation-funded lab in uh, multi-core computing with a variety of industry partners and other academic partners that you know, came up with new methods of programming these, these chips that then allowed them to create worlds that had increasing levels of complexity. And we'll play a couple minute video that talks specifically about that in a bunch of kind of nerdy technical language. CSD Center for Hybrid Multicore Productivity Research, we develop new accelerated procedural computing techniques to create a virtual world that is rich with visual complexity and dynamic behaviors. 
We are in the midst of transforming this into a massive multi-user experience, enabled through the development of a new systems design. Hosted at the San Diego Supercomputer Center is an IBM Z10 mainframe, along with an extensible number of hybrid computational accelerator cores. This system computes the asset transformation and dynamics of the virtual world, while maintaining the coherency of tens of thousands of entities for many simultaneous users. This gives us an approach for creating a new type of virtual world experience. One which combines the visual and behavioral complexities of next-generation computer games with the social interactions that virtual worlds have been designed around. Current approaches require you to make trade-offs between these two types of virtual experiences. A key approach is the use of the OpenCL programming framework, which allows our software to be flexibly deployed across a range of computing devices, including the mainframe server, server-based accelerators, and client systems which mix multi-core CPUs with powerful GPUs. This new approach for how virtual worlds are computed will help them to be more engaging cultural experiences and make them more applicable to a wide array of social undertakings in which complex activities are best understood through the interactions of many people. So the video is, you know, one of those kind of reporting things back to your sponsors and the National Science Foundation about all the, all the technical accomplishments of your work. Let's go to the next slide. But, it, uh, but one thing that happened as I was making this kind of going back and forth between making movies and making this game, um, that I would started to need a way to make, uh, use the, the interactive virtual platform as a way to make movies. So it created an application called the Virtual World Director where I could save all the activities of people interacting in this, in this game in, this, in museums every time it's exhibited. I save all the data and then I could use people's playing it to actually give me the shots that I would use when I needed to make little movies from it. Um, now, but it became a problem in that suddenly I had this plethora of data and I had to figure out what was actually good and what was bad, how I could start to see it. So I started coming up ways of using the platform itself to show me different kind of views of the data. But then, and so then from that, kind of came up with different ways of characterizing what the relationships between this different data might be. So I had to come up with a new kind of semantic structure of what these data events were. Now, what I could then do is graph and overlay everybody's uh, uh, different data patterns around the same events. So do these scatter plots of many different people's engagement in this environment. And what I started to see is that people fell into certain behavioral categories. There were kind of phenotypes of users of this system. Now, when I'm in a museum watching people play this environment, it's very clear to me what different people's engagement is. And I can sit there and watch someone, and, and I see, oh, that's how they like to look at it. And I can make a little suggestion to them, like, oh, why don't you look over there to the left? And when they do that, they're like, Wow, you know, and so this kind of, you know, they'd have this kind of a, a moment of epiphany. And it's like, damn, if I could make this, if why, I can't be there at every time, but can I make the software actually do that? Kind of tease out, the, understand what, how they want to look at this world, and then kind of give them a little bit of guidance and a little nudge to, that, will, that will take them to another level of in, insight from the system. So started to come up with ways of looking at this. So here we're going to see a visualization of people, of a number of users in this environment. 
The blue dot is a person navigating it. The red dot is a camera that, that their actions control. And um, so now what I'm going to do in this little video is normalize a bunch of different users right in the center of the screen and trace out what this camera path is that they're controlling in this environment. Now I start to overlay many different people on top of each other and what starts to emerge are these different kind of patterns that uh, I start to see of the, the kind of camera, morph camera space morphology that people have as they're moving through this environment. And so that gives me a bit of an indication of what kind of viewer a different each, each of these people are. And let's go to the next slide. And so this environment is different from a video game. It's, it's you know, in a video game, you, you can measure people's accomplishments through how many zombies they killed and how many gold coins they picked up. Now, I have no zombies or gold coins in this game. Um, it's an aesthetic experience. So the question for me is, could I come up with aesthetic analytical criteria that would give me insight into what people are seeing and doing? So one has to do with simply different, kind, different users seem to kind of produce different visual phenomena, like some produce a visual phenomena that has more landscape, some has more horizon, some has more complexity or less complexity. So now can I analyze the visual output of the environment with an analytical method and use that as an indicator of the kind of phenomen uh, uh, phenomenal experience that the user is having. So these are some examples of looking at color map, of doing, using edge detection to, to give me a kind of rough guide of visual complexity in the environment. So in that environment, it's all very um, uh, aesthetic in terms of the criteria and outcome. But there's a kind of sociocultural thing that people move from the operative into the aesthetic and then start to think about, well, why are these tornadoes of hummers running around this landscape and creating these, you know, bizarre suburban enclaves. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like kind of, you get hit over the head at a certain point, but it, maybe this is something about culture and nature relationships. Um, but there's been ways in which this has had some uh, practical application, more practical applications. Uh, um, I've been working with a group at the Rady School of Management in creating this uh, virtual world called Verbella, which looks as, uses, creates a virtual world in which groups of people from around the world can uh, get together and we can engage them in uh, different kinds of, of learning, brainstorming, and leadership cultivation environments. So we worked with, uh, we've done a number of of, of pilot projects, one with these eight business schools from different parts of the planet, creating these virtual teams where uh, people are collaborating with, uh, everyone in the group is from a different country. And they all come together and they're competing against each other um, to do these business simulations. And um, we've also done projects with the Skag School of Pharmacy and a drug discovery course um, that is that uses a MOOC as an underlying platform, and then we take a select group from the MOOC and uh, the cream of the MOOC, as we like to call it. That's a trademarked uh, phrase. Um, and um, engage them in this virtual world. 
Uh, also, UCI, well, maybe I'll show this little video. At Verbella, we aim to improve online education. We develop and deliver virtual world learning platforms that allow for blended learning, including the ability to host lectures, engage in group projects, attend student fairs, play serious games, receive coaching, and compete in simulations. Since our last update, we have started to create and support custom online campuses for universities. The University of California, Irvine, has had over 200 students utilizing Verbella to join lectures, meet with professors during office hours, and collaborate with fellow students to work on real-world problems. Meanwhile, our development team has continued to develop resources to foster learning and collaboration, as well as tools to research data-driven assessment of leadership and team cohesion. Thank you to the GMAC MEC Fund for making it possible. Check out our demo at verbella.com. And so this is actually uh, was a two-year two grant um, from GMAC that ended, and now it's actually been spun out as a small startup company um, uh, as of uh, two days ago. Um, now, in that, uh, the, the collaborators that, uh, that we worked with were uh, behavioral and organizational psychologists. And what was quite interesting is they have ways in which they do assessment, behavioral assessment, um, you know, through observation, through surveys, um, that you know, are, uh, I guess, tried and true methods, or at least they're tried. Um, and, and what we were looking to do is, can we come up with data analysis you know, of, of activity and events in the virtual world, and would they correlate to the same kind of assessments that these observations had? And so I'll give you just one example if you go to the next one. So that, for instance, here's eight teams competing against each other in a business simulation. And they're under time pressure. They've never met each other. They jump into it right away. And we start to see which team. This is a printouts of voice stress. Um, so they're all talking to each other over voice over IP. And we can, uh, and so we wanted to know, could we use voice stress pattern analysis to determine which were high performing teams? And it turned out this was the best performing team both by anecdotal measures as well as the accomplishments in the simulation. And we could see that it's because everybody kind of took turns talking. Everybody talked about the same amount of time. They collaborated very well. Um, other teams, uh, like this one, uh, was the worst in that one person dominated the whole conversation and uh, they, they did poorly. So we could see from this kind of very high-level view of data, we could start to get data-mined assessment data out of this. So let's go to the next slide. So it starts to get us to the point now, we're looking at all this data. How about brains? You know, you know in a way, culture, culture is just this. It's brain-to-brain -brain communication without computers. You know, I, I make works of art because I want my brain the idea is here to get into the ideas of inside your brain. Um, I have to make virtual worlds or paintings or music or write books in order to do that. Well, how about can we do that with computers um, more directly? So we started to bring in these EEG, just like we use the behavioral psychologists to make these correlations to our data analysis system. Can we do that with EEG and other methods? So let's go to the next. 
So we now have a, a National Science Foundation grant to do that, create a, have a distributed virtual world, connect people through EEG, motion capture, eye tracking into that shared virtual environment. Go to the next. And one of the first things that we see is that uh, our brains are different from each other in, in a very one very interesting, unique way. That some of us are allocentric and some of us are egocentric. And, um, and I don't mean that in the traditional way of egocentric. Um, uh, but um, what it means is that some of us, when we move through a virtual environment, we are always keeping ourselves within a global coordinate system. And so when we go through it, we're always kind of relating our, our, our position and orientation to that global coordinate system. Some of us relate to the world where it's our coordinate system that is the center of all of everything. So that's the egocentric perspective. And it turns out that this is something we can actually discern from EEG data. So we can see different places in which people have uh, where egocentric versus allocentric uh, navigation occurs in the brain. So it's a different brain signature. Um, so, in this, so in this work, we're actually playing off these two different kinds of navigation and, and then looking at ways in which we may be able to switch people from one navigation mode to the other. Now, and, and so it gives us a, a kind of uh, uh, a tangible uh, brain signal that we can use to engage and interact in this kind of cultural form. Now, another one that we're looking at is with uh, eye contact. Go to the next slide. And in particular, because there's this phenomenon called the uncanny valley that you may be familiar with, where when we have artificial agents like robots and avatars and animated characters, when they're all kind of like, you know, cute looking and, you know, not too human, but, you know, a little bit, we, you know, we like them. Um, but then, you know, we think we're, we think we're really talented and we're going to make this thing look really human. And then it just freaks us out. You know, we're like, what the hell is that thing? You know, and, and, you know, there's some movies, you know, that are famous for this. Polar Express, you know, was probably the most famous movie where you had all these really bizarre versions of Tom Hanks running around. It kind of creeped everybody out. And it's because it's falling in this uncanny valley, which is actually a phenomenon that we can see in the brain. So the next, um, there's parts of the brain that have increased activity when they're experiencing this kind of uncanny valley phenomena. So now, once again, we can use that, and we're, and we're drilling it down to just eye contact of, of in avatars um, in virtual worlds to see if we can find when that uncanny valley happens, can we actually utilize that in a creative and productive way, and can we then mitigate the effect. Um, so go to the next. So we have a feedback loop that is building that creates this uncanny valley and then tries to uh, uh, ameliorate it. So these are kind of at the cognitive level of brain, you know, of large-scale brain activity. Uh, but what the brain is made up of all these little small cells, these neurons and these glial cells. Um, might they have a role in producing imagination? So, um, so we're working with a, um, a, a stem cell scientist, uh, Alison Mutri, and we have this crazy idea. This is the next slide. Um, so, 
you know, we, we can look at our brains, and wouldn't it be great if we could look at a brain that's kind of close to ours but isn't ours, like Neanderthals. So if Neanderthal culture goes back, you know, uh, you know, 500 million years or 500,000 years, we can see that looking at the fossil record that their culture remained relatively static um, from the earliest traces to the last ones that we can see. So here's an example of what their technology developed over that time that we can find. Humans overlap at the kind of tail end of that and go to the next click and yet in a much shorter time we've created our own advances from arrowheads to Google Glass, which is also kind of a creepy technology. <laughs> um, but um, so our humans are incredibly more imaginative than Neanderthals. Um, that may be why we became the predominant, why we, why we won, I'll just say it, we won. Um, and uh, Motri has a way that he can grow Neanderthal neurons through stem cells. Um, so he can take, uh, take, we know that the Neanderthal genome differed from the human genome by, uh, by just 40 genes. And four of them are significant to the development of, of the brain. And um, they're very key genes. And he can take a human, uh, human stem cell, inject these new, uh, these new genes into it, and grow Neanderthal neurons. So what we're do, what we are trying to do, is uh, grow, is look at ways in which we can measure both. We look at the morphology of the neurons, but also look at how neurons respond in, in an anticipatory way. So we can stimulate them in patterns and see if they can, if they end up anticipating the coming patterns. Um, and what is the difference between the humans' neurons in doing that and the Neanderthal ones? So now we're asking this question at a neuronal level. Let's go to the next. So, um, so from this, now I want to kind of pull back a little bit and talk about some ways in which this starts, might start to produce new kinds of, of cultural products. So go ahead and click in another three-minute video. The continued development of the reach of computing is now bringing new types of emergent phenomena into its grasp. We are entering a new era in which human activity will be transformed by the ongoing developments between data, algorithms, and people. This formula will change the way we learn, create knowledge, and communicate with each other. We are creating a platform in which our computing systems can develop, learn, and evolve to provide emergent behavior out of the interactions between data and users. Our first demonstration of this approach is a project called, Assembly in which an algorithmic basis of evolutionary processes has been created. A synthetic system of encoding characteristics, and a set of rules akin to the chemistry and physics of an environment, provide a basis for creating increasingly complex emergent behavior. However, these genetic and environmental conditions are abstractions of an underlying scheme, which can be applied to varied types of data. In the assembly project we show this by working through three levels of representation that evoke, 1. The cellular, 2. The organism, and 3. The socio-cultural. The system runs across a variety of computing platforms. On portable devices, you attend to cultivating a single assembly at any of the three levels of representation. 
Your entity is part of a larger colony, which you are able to engage and experience through higher fidelity tools such as a computer, game platform, or virtual reality device. These assemblies grow and change as your own interactions with the assembly deepen. At the highest level, your assembly becomes an avatar in a complex cultural environment, showing how this approach can become a vehicle for interaction in an information-dense world. Through this work, we are building a systematic approach for nurturing computational entities to have increasing agency in their context. Creating this relationship will change the way we interact with computers, providing us with experiences of greater insight, supporting how we work, play, live, and learn. So, um, so this project, we're going to premiere it in a couple of months. And, what, and the way you'll do it is everybody, it'll be shown in, uh, in an auditorium. And you'll all be able to interact with it through your cell phones. And so everyone in the audience will be a part of this environment and uh, that you'll all share on uh, you know, a common screen. Um, so let me just now kind of shift to talk a little bit about some of the pedagogical development. So we've, you know, we've been partnering with a number of, the Clark Center has been partnering with a number of, of places on campus. We, we've been running a, a seminar series with the Kavli Institute for Brain and Mind on creativity and imagination. Um, let's go to the next. Um, uh, and then we've been working with Six College. We're actually this spring starting this foundation course that will run for the next few years called Are We Alone? Um, which takes that question of, of are we alone and asks it from a number of different perspectives. So first, you know, thinking about what is the concept of, of me and as a kind of soci sociocultural construct, you know, the, the Western kind of liberal uh, individual. Um, What's the concept of me as a collection of, of, a, of, of a biome, of a, of a personal ecosystem that consists of more alien DNA than my own DNA? Um, what is the question of who are we alone when we think of it as a, on a cosmic scale when every, every day we're discovering more and more planets in this universe? Um, does it start to change our conception of are we alone or not? And then we have a new major that's going to be launching called speculative design, um, where we're going to try to uh, try to engage the design of the future. So can we look at the emergence of new potent techno-cultural developments and, and consider how we might prototype, visualize, consider their impact on the world? Um, uh, so uh, another interdisciplinary activity. Go to the next. Now also, uh, you know, I said we don't have a science fiction program here, but we do have a summer writing program in science fiction called the Clarion Science Fiction Writers Workshop, which uh, the Clark Center runs, and every summer brings half a dozen of, of today's you know, most interesting science fiction authors and, and then uh, a few dozen of, of what are going to be tomorrow's most interesting science fiction authors. And, a lot of great people have come out of this program, people like Bruce Sterling and Karen Fowler and Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, again. Um, uh, so, and, and we just, four people from this program just won uh, Nebula Awards, uh, just announced a couple days ago. We have an ongoing program with the Smithsonian called The Future is Here. And uh, we, we'll, we'll, if you've 
able to be out in Washington, D.C., May 16th to 18th of this coming year. It's the same exact dates. This is last year's program. This, this year's program is the future of you, but last year we had um, the future is here, science meets science fiction. We had uh, two Star Trek generations represented, Patrick Stewart and George Takei, which is always fun, but also a, a range of interesting people who kind of talked about the interrelationship of, of, of science and science fiction. Um, we run a symposium on some of these topics. So one of the symposium we ran was on a 100-year project to create a starship and brought together people from NASA, from the commercial space industry, physicists, science fiction authors, Neil Stevenson, uh, Larry Niven, David Brin, Freeman Dyson, Paul Davies are the four that you see there, um, to think about if we, 100 years, create a starship, what, is, what are the implications of that as a civilization goal? Um, uh, it's quite interesting. Um, uh, and then we run a lot of interdisciplinary ta uh, conversations, planetary defense, uh, the discovery of, of all these exoplanets, the way in which our embodied cognition influences the development of mathematical ideas. So our body and math. There's a correlation. We did a big multiverse thing, which was also a part of this, this series that Brian Keating was a part of, as well as a few other people. Um, celebrate Galileo's birthday with a, a discussion about Galileo as in, the, inventing the role of the scientist with music by his father, um, which is touching. Uh, we have a science fiction film series. Um, and we take, a, we take a science fiction film, and then we try to look at it from its scientific perspective, its artistic perspective, and its social impact. And then often getting people who are involved in the movie to be a part of it. So here we had Jill Tarter, who is, who is what the Jodie Foster character is based on, her work. We, of course, had 2001, and we had Hal and Dave, um, which was great. Um, you know, Hal doesn't like to talk about 2001 too much. You know, he doesn't want to be, you know, typecast. But, um, uh, but, but uh, Keir DeLay was terrific. And we had uh, Fred Ordway, who was the chief science advisor. And what's remarkable about 2001, when you think about it, is here's a movie which, on the one hand, had, you know, these kind of the most abstract stakes about human transcendence as a part of it. And it's situated in a future that was so, had such plausible veracity um, you know, from the perspective of the late 60s that, of course, that's exactly what 2001 was going to be like. And, uh, and even when you look at it today, and it wasn't just because of the special effects, it's because of the interrelationship of how the humans and the larger cultural condition that they're a part of is contextualized. And so f terrific having Fred Ordway kind of take us through and talk about how that was developed. Um, Gattaca with uh, Larry Goldstein, who uh, some of you might know, um, and uh, Shanti Ganesh, who's a sociologist, talking about, and this movie comes out when you know, we're just on the cusp of, of, of sequencing the genome. And so the issues around what might this mean uh, sociologically, if we have this level of information and understanding about people, it was very attenuated there. Um, we did the Andromeda strain at the height of the Ebola 
craziness. And, um, and so we, we managed to f throw a little more fuel on that fire, I think. Uh, so one of the more recent things we did was this collaboration uh, with Marina Abramovich and Kim Stanley Robinson on a workshop that was creating a piece that's going to be at the Venice Biennale. And maybe I'll end by showing a bit of a video that comes out of this. Space is not empty. We are flying between the stars. Our voyage will take centuries. All our names never name. Possibly this is why we have come to this pretty pass and now lie dreaming together between the stars. So much is going on. Is that a feeling? The memory of a feeling? A mood? A consciousness? Are we conscious? The universe is fractal between the stars. The universe is fractal, including our minds. One wants a certain density of experience, so here we are, billions of trillions of times denser than the interstellar medium. Tarf. Sadakbia. In a process somewhat like Andromeda. Our turn must be almost Impossible. a U-turn. We should not have tried to leave. Be our beautiful. Hard problem. Proxima Centauri. Vega. It is our fate. A controlled burn that keeps Meaning everything a deep in dive the stars into are the atmosphere. K O I two four seven four point zero one. Bellatrix. HD 200964. Dense complexities flying through diffuse complexities. Around us, the stars. WASP 26. ATP 31. The stars are too far away. Anybody else out there? We are alone in our life world. Messier 51. No way to slow down. Going at this speed, deceleration is the hard problem. Port bow. 
Blue shift ahead, red shift behind. The stars. Kepler 16. We sense this, we sense that. We compress sense data to some new output in the form of a sentence. No such thing as a vacuum. HD Stars visible to humans from the surface of the Earth, 10,000. From space, 100,000. Through telescopes, 7 billion. One for every person. We need what we have. There are about one septillion stars in the universe, but there may be as many universes outside our universe as there are stars in this universe, or even atoms. There is no way to know. Idea, concept, notion, delusion, fantasy, lie, or dream. Always language. So that's an excerpt from that, and we'll just close with a <clears throat> slide from someone who says it much better than I ever could, um, that the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. So um, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.